0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Security is a constantly changing field, and stories that happen one day, you know, may progress over time, may evolve as things happen on the internet. That certainly happened this week. We've been following this SambaCry bug, which was the sort of the Linux version of the WannaCry Eternal Blue bug.
1: Hey, Jim. So I guess a few weeks ago you covered SambaCry, and I heard you have an update.
0: Yeah.
2: When we covered
1: it two weeks
2: ago, you know, my big concern was NAS systems that were, you know, open to the internet or whatever. And the concern was, since it didn't require any user interaction, it would be turned into a worm. And unfortunately, it has been. Kaspersky has reported that they are seeing folks in the wild exploiting this Samba vulnerability to spread uh, cryptocurrency miners. So just to reiterate, those shouldn't be on the Internet. If, if they are, they need to be patched. And if you can't patch them, there was a config file change that would neuter it, and that, that needs to be done. Uh, we were afraid it would get turned into a worm and it has been.
1: Well, that's a shame. Not yes. surprising, but it's
0: a real shame. Yeah.
1: Sometimes, uh, especially with the data we have, we're able to predict those uh, initial uh, kind of alerts that let you know a problem was looming. And unfortunately, you know, this is something that was uh, uh, taken uh, and became a worm. Well, it sounds like something that happens quite often. Uh, you know, these vulnerabilities get discovered. Uh, security researchers point them out. The problem, I think, here is that maybe some of these kinds of systems can get patched, maybe, some of these devices. Maybe they were vendor appliances, and unfortunately, the bad guys have uh, found a way to warm that. And I'm sure that eventually some pen testing uh, framework is going to have this one of, as one of the checks uh, to make sure you're compliant.
0: Sure. In general, if you don't have to put something on the internet, don't put it on the internet. Yep.
1: Hey Matt, I heard uh, about Shadowfall. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it?
0: Yeah, I've been a big James Bond fan for years. <laughs> I mean it really does sound like a James Bond kind of thing. Yes, like that's, yes that's it the does. layer of the evil villain is obviously Shadowfall. I always like hearing about coordinated efforts to take down bad guy infrastructure and in the Shadowfall case this was RSA, Palo Alto Networks and a couple other companies working together uh, to take down some bad guy infrastructure. Rig exploit kit, there was a takedown of that uh, a couple weeks ago. It's really kind of impressive work. There, there's, there's always been like a reigning kin of ex- exploit kits, and one gets knocked down, the next one takes its place, and rig is the latest one to be king and also have got knocked down. Uh, rig was actually pretty technically interesting. Uh, the way that it was built out. I mean, the, the structure of RIG is not that surprising mm-hmm. in terms of you've got your exploited uh, websites, usually uh, WordPress, Joomla, Drupal, those CMS's that people tend to use. A lot of people think that just going to a website can't infect your computer, that you have to download some sort of malware or run some sort of program that you've downloaded. And That's not the case. So, the, an exploit kit is a package of exploits for your browser or browser plugins. You attack the browser plugins or you attack the browser, force them to do things like download malware and run it on your machine. They did some interesting things at certain points. They, they sort of chronicle the timeline yeah. of, of the modifications that were made to, to rig over time. And some things they did that were kind of crazy were instead of using an IP address when they, they build out a URL, they actually use um, like a decimal number, like just a large integer. And that work? It works. Oh, wow. It absolutely works in browsers. There's there's a whole bunch of different ways you can encode stuff in a URL. I think you could even use like hex in certain ways. There's wow. like, like multiple ways. But of course, if you're trying to build out your thread intel and you're parsing these URLs, it'll be like, it'll just choke and die and say, I don't even know what that is, unless you're catching that, that encoding Yeah, that's mode. an
1: important one to pay attention to, especially I guess on proxy records and things like that, which yep. most people are expecting IP addresses or domains names there.
0: So, yeah, if, you, if you're expecting, you know, if your, your intel system that's parsing that just chokes on it and throws it on the floor, you're missing something valuable there. So that was done intentionally, obviously. I thought particularly interesting was the, the fact that they were using uh, domain shadowing. And domain shadowing is taking over somebody else's domain, you know, getting the username and password. In this case, most of them were hosted on GoDaddy, which is how GoDaddy got involved. Uh, but people will get the credentials for a legitimate... Uh, domain register site and then log in and then add subdomains to a legitimate domain, which I guess creates less noise, isn't as obtrusive. Uh, and also if you're, some, if you're using a system that uses threat intel and checks the root domain and says, well, this domain's had a history for years of being something that's clean. Right. Any subdomain would automatically be trusted. So it's a way of sheltering the domains that you're creating to, to reputational detection systems,
1: which is pretty sharp. Yeah, it's a very clever tactic. Wow. These guys are really good. There's a (laughs) lot of little
0: things they did that were very impressive. And also, one of the the nerdier things that they did is a lot of their code um, in the JavaScript that they wrote and the the shot they used flash files for a lot of those exploits as well. They made reference to a string iddqd, and that's actually from Doom, like 1994, original Doom. So I got a kick out of that. And so did the researchers at Talos who were also... There's a number of write-ups on RIG. It's, it's one of those things that people have been studying intensely for a while. Yeah. Uh, so it's exciting to see both how it's been done and then also to see how it was taken down. So this was shut down by uh, GoDaddy having a, a good view of where all the compromised accounts were. By identifying those accounts and um, all at once shutting them down, they basically cut the whole thing off at the head because they were using the same kinds of subdomains. Mm-hmm. So I imagine on their end, they could take a filter and say, here's the 20, like it was, it was a solid set. It wasn't just random. It was yeah. like, these are the ones we always use. Well, great. There's your detection system if you're GoDaddy. Take a look at people who are registering those subdomains and you can probably catch the new compromised accounts very quickly. So there's a ton. I'm realizing... There's a I'm lot just, of technical oh, information, yeah. it
1: sounds like. You know, one thing that seems impressive to me is that RSA was able to find and work with a group of people at GoDaddy and these other researchers. Mm-hmm. And they found the right contacts and they really all worked together from all these different companies, right? That's not very easy to accomplish. So sure. It's a big coordination effort, yeah. It's a big coordination effort. All these security researchers, they were able to come together and and kind of try to solve this problem. When I looked at the article at the end, one of the things that I noted was that they said, you know, we don't know what, what the bad guys are gonna do to react to this. Yep. But we know for sure that we're able to take down, you know, thousands of domain names out of circulation for them. So probably the bad guys won't stop. And yep. it seems from these tactics, they were definitely thinking kind of at that next level. Um, but I'm glad that they were able to develop these uh, these partnerships and have really worked together with GoDaddy and, and the other researchers, so that's, sure. that's really good.
2: My friend Brad Duncan was one of the ones that was actively involved in this, and uh, you know, he's been tracing these, you know, trying to track these exploit kits and the... You know, the um, the malicious actors behind them for a long time I mean, that's basically what he does finally to get some traction with these other researchers and the rest of the you know the code 42 guys and uh, and all of that um, this was this was really nicely done
0: i can't fault everyone who did great work on this exactly but like stan said they're going to just pivot and try something new they may move to a less cooperative you know hosting provider and, and uh registrar for their domains. I mean, I I personally think that any successful, complete takedown requires arrests. But what do you guys think of that?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's been uh, this game of cat and mouse, you know, for as long as we've been, you know, trying to track down the bad guys on the Internet. Mm -hmm. We do something and they'll adapt. And then we'll have to adapt to their adaptation and, you know, it's a never-ending thing. I mean it's, it's why I'm convinced I've got job security until I'm ready to retire mm-hmm. the bad guys aren't going to go away. so we have to keep doing what we need to do to track them down and yes, ideally we track them back to individuals and get them arrested and thrown in jail. You know that's not going to happen every time.
0: Right and what's not let what, what's the phrase what's not made um, perfect to be the enemy of good? Exactly.
1: The thing that spoke to me was the collaborative effort between so many different uh, researchers. They didn't have some kind of uh, edict, yeah, go shut this down. They all just felt passionate about it, uh, about making sure that, you know, the internet is a little bit more secure. And I think that's the kind of coordination we're going to need going forward, you know, within the industry. Bad guys, they have their own forums, they have their own underground communities where they communicate and they sell illicit tools. So in the industry, we should be helping each other as well.
0: So Jim, uh, I think you were reading a little bit about analysis of malware samples based on the the timestamp that's built into them. That sounded kind of cool.
2: It was written back in January. It, it was on the Invincia uh, blog and I flagged it to read later and then got busy and finally was getting around to it recently. They did a, an interesting study of the uh, compiler timestamps in malware samples. The compiler, when it generates the executable, actually embeds a timestamp in the PE header. And the bad guys have two choices. They can leave it alone, in which case you know when they compiled the malware sample, or they can modify it, they can put something fake in there.
0: When you write code on a system and it's compiled code, which is, to be fair, probably most of the code that runs on people's systems, if they're a Windows user or or a Mac user, when you compile it, which is to take it from human-readable code into machine-readable code, the compiler will append a timestamp in that file somewhere so that I can take a look at it and say, okay, well, I compiled it on this date.
2: They studied a bunch of malicious samples and compared it to benign samples and found some some really interesting artifacts. You know, for one thing, there were a lot of malware samples that had compiled timestamps from the 1980s.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I don't know uh, a whole lot of software written in the 1980s that is still being run. There is some, I'm sure. So that was one that kind of stood out. And then, you know, there are timestamps in the future. Now, it turns out that there are, there's benign software that also has these compile timestamps in the future, but not to the same extent. So there are some definite patterns to the malicious compiler timestamps.
0: And it turns out that, yeah, usually when you've got these things that are in the far future or far past, they're probably malware because someone took the time to modify those compile times. Wait, Jim, are you telling me that they've actually discovered time travel as the result of this research?
2: (laughs) Yeah, not quite. They actually built a machine learning system and fed it just the compiler timestamps and were able to detect 60% of previously unseen malware in the first month or so of 2017 Hmm. based strictly on the compiler timestamp having trained the the machine learning with both malicious and benign samples from 2016 with only about 1% false positive rate.
1: Wow, all right.
2: Which was really amazing to me. As a practical matter, I'm not sure that I'm gonna rely on that for detecting a lot of things, but it is certainly a feature that I hadn't really paid a lot of attention to. When I look at potential malware samples, I'm going to start looking at it as another indicator, possibly. Sure. Especially those timestamps that look like they're, you know, come from the Reagan presidency.
0: That's kind of interesting. Um, you mentioned that they're using machine learning, but you also said they're really just relying on the timestamps, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my take on machine learning is you, you generally give it a, the opportunity to look at a large set of different features, where here the features I'm hearing are timestamp is someplace in the, in the future or someplace in the distant past. Is machine learning really necessary? Or can I just write a filter at that point and just say, if less than this or greater than this?
2: Well, it, it, actually, it actually went further than that. Okay. And they, they didn't go into a lot of detail in the, in the blog post. I'm hoping that they'll do a, 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 a deeper dive in a white paper or something mm-hmm. someplace. But they were able to correlate them based on the way that it modified the timestamp algorithmically. So okay. it was able to to build on that. So it's
0: so it know, needs it, more it than one important. sample to do that, right? It needs that that cluster right. of sample okay, I see where you're going with it. Right.
2: Right. So that's where the machine learning came in, where it fed it this corpus of both benign and malicious mm-hmm. software. And then they were able, based on whether it was benign or malicious, and these timestamps to develop, you know, some sort of understanding of the patterns that the, the malware authors were using cool. in particular.
0: And like you said, it, it sounds like you, by just using this as your detection mechanism, you can get pretty far. But that's, that's assuming you've got a bunch of files with no context. Now, if you're doing a regular investigation, you'll probably have the time this came on the box, you know what it did, what dropped it on the box. You have other things that may also indicate that this is malware by its behavior, and this is another tip, like you said, that just adds to that score.
1: Yeah, the considering timestamps in your analysis, especially for like forensics investigations, is actually very important. So one of the things we've seen malware do in the past is change the the, the file system time, so the time it was created. But maybe you can cross-reference that now with the compile time mm-hmm. and see how close they are to each other. I think some malware like takes the compile time, uh, the installation time of like kernel 32 or something like that. Okay. And uh, you know uses right. that to put the same uh, timestamp on the malicious file. So if
0: anybody's looking for new files in the file system, it hides in the the weeds with all the system files. Yeah, right?
1: exactly. So it looks like it came with Windows, so or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's definitely interesting. You know, another uh, line of thought here is that sometimes malware packages itself like inside of zip files or includes like a zip file inside that's obfuscated. Right. And so if you think about doing more of this type of analysis with time Sometimes those file formats like zip or 7-zip or R, they include the timestamp from the file system maybe of the attacker.
0: Oh, so if somebody's baking a bunch of, I think I know where you're going. If someone's baking a bunch of files, your compile time will be very close to the time it was zipped because it's all part of a single chain of
1: Potentially. packaging. Potentially. Or you could see the difference between like this archive that they embed and the compile timestamp inside of the, the virus, let's mm-hmm. say. So you could see that you know, somebody took the extra time to change that or fake the P file timestamp, uh, or, or they didn't, uh, right? So sometimes, in, especially like when doing forensics, I know Jim does a lot of that, uh, you, you, you notice these little things, these like intricate details, and it really helps you to figure out uh, what kind of malware you're looking at or what, how, how advanced is the adversary that you're dealing with. Some of them will make sure those zip files don't have valid timestamps and then some of them won't. And this is true even for some compiled malware like Python. Like in Python, if you compile a, a PYC file, the header includes the timestamp that that PYC file was compiled. And some malware today you know, includes PYC files with that timestamp. So you can extend this type of analysis to even other you know, families of malware that use all the technologies. It's really interesting. I'm very interested in this research.
2: That's a great point because yet we've seen uh, malware that uses you know time techniques to to modify the you know the create or modified time as you said to match you know kernel thirty two DLL or something on the system. But if the compile time timestamp in the PE header is later than the created time or the modified time in the file system timestamps, that should be something that you know gets flagged as, hey, something weird is going on here. This is definitely something we need to look into. So yeah. I, I thought this was very cool.
1: Whenever you're doing something, you're kind of leaving a little signature behind. You know, no Cookie Chrome is too little, uh, you know, anything can be useful, especially when you're looking at it in aggregate and you've got lots of data, lots of samples, and you can really look at that parameter uh, in depth. And I'm not going to tell you what the lessons are for the bad guys.
0: All right, let's take a look at the Internet Weather for this week. All right. For the most probe ports, hasn't been that much movement up and down for the major uh, scanning ports. Port 23, Telnet, still in the lead. Uh, Port 22 is second place, which is SSH, not too much of a surprise there. Port 9000 TCP, we'll go into that later, but that was actually, that kicked off a couple weeks ago as well. And that's been significant scanning. Port 445 is our um, SMB or Samba, depending on, we've we've seen worms for both of those now. Most sources probing, the same cast of characters shows up here. We've got 23, 445, 22. 81 actually shows up, which wasn't on the last graph. Uh, 81, I think, is Perserai, that Mirai variant, the Persian one. Yeah, that must be
1: looking at something very specific.
0: Yep, they're very specific. Um, I think it's web uh, web cameras that have a, a vulnerability in the web login, which is on port 81. 445 TCP, and we talked about that, yeah, that's uh, the, that's SMB, that was the WannaCry attacks, so you can see them far over on the right. I'm actually showing uh, 365 days here, just to get an idea of what the internet looked like before and after WannaCry, and you can see for the most part, this scanning was sort of trending downwards. But once, ever since we've gotten to this WannaCry, we had that spike on that that fateful Friday, and then ever since then, it's actually gone quite high up. And I would say the baseline came in around um, 10,000 scan sources per hour. And here we're peaking up towards uh, 24,000 scan sources per hour. So it's about doubled in the last couple of weeks since WannaCry. So this is, again, a port of interest.
1: In our data, what we saw was, yeah, there was a spike. Uh, There was a a big spike when that activity was happening. But then it kind of went away, especially after all that attention. But then uh, after, you know, kind of the attention died down, There was a slow, gradual increase back to the norm, and actually, this week, Matt showed us that it even uh, started surpassing. So we're definitely picking up something interesting, and I'm sure in the next few weeks or or months, we'll learn more about what that is that's behind that.
0: Port 9000, this one is pretty interesting. You can see it comes out of nowhere, I want to say, around the end of, within the last few days of May, May, and it just spiked. It was huge. Uh, this may be a single botnet and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, interpreting this to say that there are not gaps in our data but gaps in the scanning activity mm-hmm. where this actually drops significantly and then spiked back up. So that may be somebody hitting the on off toggle on their botnet to scan for this. There are certain ports that people have been scanning for a very long time and there's always a certain level of like a baseline of activity on those ports. 9000 hasn't been one of those ports and to see it explode like that, honestly, it is kind of typical if you've got a botnet that's scanning it, because usually people will do some research like a little bit beforehand, and then all of a sudden you'll see this, this huge, huge spike, and there may have been a tiny amount of it, but when you've got botnet activity like that, it's, it's not surprising to see something just come out of the blue when someone decides it's, it's the target du jour. Uh, Port 9000 is a, targets a very specific brand of DVR uh, with some ancient vulnerabilities in it, as far as we know. The sources also appear to be a variety of IoT devices. So someone's trying to farm out, maybe they've got an existing IoT botnet they want to expand into a new, I want to say a new vulnerability, but a different vulnerability than they were exposing before, attacking before. That's really interesting. And the scan sources are somewhere down between eight to 10,000 sources per hour, Mm -hmm. Um, but somebody's definitely got interest in this. And to see that it's generally trending, it spiked so suddenly and it's slowly trending back down. I really think this is just one botnet. I should have taken a look at some of the sources, but it seems pretty cohesive. You don't see a daily cycle of scanning. You don't see any sort of jitter or, or changes in there too much. So
1: yeah, that's I, my... Yeah, I own. would tend to agree with that. All right. Port
0: 1433, I have about 30 days here. This has been, been pretty interesting as well. You've got significant upticks, but not like spikes. There's sort of a general ramping up over, over the span of several days, actually. I'm not sure what to make of it, really. I'm really curious about what happened between uh, the, the 30th of May and the 2nd of June there, where you have a huge fall-off and then it ramps back up to almost the same heights, but I'm not really sure.
1: Yeah, maybe somebody took a day off. Was that a weekend? Uh, that's a good question. Oh. I could
0: bring up my Windows calendar here. <laughs> uh, the 30th and the 2nd, that was the middle of the week.
1: Yeah, right really, there. maybe uh, somebody went on vacation. Could be, and <laughs> they came on vacation. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: But that's uh, it's the major aberrations for the internet you know, weather for the the
1: week. Uh, some interesting uh, things that we're seeing. Yeah, the threats—they're out there. The vulnerabilities are out there, and people are discovering them. When we're able to share insights with each other, then maybe we can make the internet a better place. You know, we can share these kinds of insights, just like we are, like on Threat Track. Hey, we're just discovering this, and somebody else might uh, chime in and say, hey, yeah, I know what that's related to. It's this malware. And then we can always work collaboratively to try to take some action uh, to make the internet a little bit safer and a little bit better place.
0: The views expressed on ATT threat track are those of the participants and do not necessarily
1: represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.